All right, if you are new with us, like I said, we are in a, a series called The Story, and we have for you uh, at the back of the room uh, copies of the story for you to follow along with us. We are in chapter 10 this week. We also have Bibles, so we're going to be in the, in the book of 1 Samuel this morning, and we're going to cover a lot of ground talking about this guy named Samuel. And this is going to take us all the way from what we talked about uh, last, in the last couple of weeks as we talked about Judges and Ruth all the way up till we get to a guy named David next week. At the end of the book of Joshua, uh, he gathered all of Israel. We talked about this last week. At the end of the book of, jo- of Joshua, Joshua himself gathered all of Israel, and we see that he, he had them make a promise. He, he asked them to make a promise, and they did. They took an oath. They made a vow. Um, and that vow, their vow, was that even long after Joshua was dead, and gone, that they would continue to serve God with all their hearts. And of their own volition, willingly, in other words, they all said, yes, we will do that. So they all agreed to do this. And like we said last week, it didn't take them very long before they began worshiping idols again. I want you to recall, uh, we're going to put this up on the screen, uh, I want to recall again what exactly was said. It said in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, which we just said, you know, that's just amazing. The whole generation didn't know God. They didn't know what he had done for them. And then it says, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And we said this begins this vicious, vicious cycle of obedience to God's covenant and peace in their lives only when they are underneath the guidance of a judge that God gives to them. And then they they go through that cycle and everything turns to absolute chaos in their lives when they think they can kind of go on on their own. They think they can be big boys and girls (laughs) all of a sudden. But when they do that, they disobey the covenant agreement that they vowed to God. And they basically, I want you to understand it this way, when they decide to do evil, when they decide to go it on their own, when they think that they can do it all by themselves, do a better job, they are basically committing adultery. They are committing adultery. And I want to phrase it that way because remember the covenant was a marriage covenant. Remember when we talked about that? The covenant was a marriage covenant, a ketuva, a ketuva. They were marriage vows between God and the nation of Israel. And it's worse than adultery, in fact, because essentially they prostitute themselves to other gods. And those other gods... Those gods are angry and they are vengeful. Gods that ask for infant and child sacrifice. And the Israelites join these other people who worship gods like that and they do those things. So we read this in Judges 13.1, which is at the time of Samson. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for how long? For 40 years. And then we read this a little while later in Judges 21, 25. This is at the time of Ruth. And right before Samuel comes on the scene, it says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And it causes, as my, as my best friend growing up would love to say in his family, you're in big, fat trouble. <laughs> it causes some big, fat trouble. Do whatever you want with whatever 
and whoever you want, whenever you want, how you want, whatever feels good, just do it. Read Judges 21 and you basically see that I just paraphrased that for you. If you read the whole chapter, do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want. Just do it. Just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. That's, that's Judges 21. So because of this vicious cycle of obedience under a judge and then falling away into disobedience and chaos when there isn't a judge, you would think that it's just all this flipping back and forth immediately, but not in the time that we're talking about today. The time we're talking about today, it's kind of like just this lull. It's like they hit pause for a little bit. It, uh, it's a spiritually dry time, and there is no passion for God at all. It's so passionless that there's a priest named Eli and his sons act out against God, blatantly ignoring the covenant. Faith in God means nothing to them anymore. They are stealing with people, stealing with people. They are stealing from people and they're sleeping around and everyone knows it. And the kicker is their dad, who is the priest, he knows it and he seemingly does nothing about it. And so this is a concern. I want to draw this to us right now. This is a concern I have uh, for any kid in our church or in any church or, you know, a family who grows up in the church, if you've been in the church for your whole life, because you can grow complacent, you can become complacent, because, for example, you know, my kids are here at this church building with me all the time. Anybody know the, the reputation that pastor's kids have over time? Yeah? My kids are with me at church. They're here before all of you get here. They're here after all you are here. They are here all the time throughout the week, sometimes twiddling their thumbs, putting up with just being here. My wife knows this story all too well because she was a pastor's kid. My parents were elders in their church and on several service teams, and I was there all the time. And, but what I want to tell you is that they, our kids are here doing stuff with us at church all the time. And my concern is that since they're around it all the time, that it'll become so mundane that it won't mean anything to them anymore. You guys hear me on that? Yeah, that's my concern. But it's also my concern for all of you, for anyone who's been in church for a long time, for their whole life, because it's, what is harder and harder for me to discern is how people are growing in, their, in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. That's how I know they're not becoming complacent. Fruit of the Spirit should be growing. It should be coming, the crop should be getting more bountiful and the fruit should be becoming even more tasty over time, not stale and thrown out in the compost bin. It's in this type of context where everyone is complacent that Samuel is born 1 Samuel 3.1 tells us that in those days, when he was born, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And the question is, well, why not? If the, if the people who say they're following God have no spiritual life at all, and they have abandoned their first love, it means they aren't even trying. They're not even trying. So there's no word from God and no vision. And so it's like, look, you can't just sit there in your life asking for God to speak to you, but you're not doing anything. You are not trying to grow in passion. You are not trying 
to find and seek him. And this feels a little bit like when Jesus visits his, home, his hometown. I was thinking about this as I was reading 1 Samuel. He hasn't been there. Jesus hasn't been to his hometown in a while, and he begins preaching and teaching in the synagogue. And they take offense at him in his own town. And he says this famous phrase. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Sometimes we just say a prophet or teacher has no honor in their hometown. But after that, he says uh, in Matthew 13, 50, 58, he says, and he did not, the text of Matthew says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Jesus wouldn't perform any miracles there because they did not believe. They didn't, they didn't act like it. Maybe it was all up here in their head, but they didn't put it on display. But Samuel, if we go back to the story of Samuel, he was raised by his mom, Hannah. It says she was a God-fearing woman, a God-fearing mom. And I want to encourage you moms out there, you have a powerful, powerful influence on your kids. The, the same thing we read about Samuel and his mom we read in the New Testament. If, you, if you've read your New Testament, maybe you don't know this about Timothy. Paul writes these letters. He writes 1st and 2nd Timothy. Timothy's faith, it says, was given to him first by his grandmother and then by his mom. The faith was passed on from one woman to another and then to her son, Timothy. So moms and dads, don't give up. Don't give up, okay? And because Samuel has faith, as he grows up, he begins having visions. Eli, who is the priest who is training Samuel, he's so deluded and so distorted and so complacent that he thinks it's impossible that Samuel should be having visions from God. But he finally says, Wow, these keep happening. This, these must be visions from God. And this whole part of the story makes me think long and hard about the history of local churches all over the country, all over the world. Any local church that has been in existence for a while is in danger of growing complacent, in danger of operating without faith, trying to do things under our own power, or just not trying to do anything at all anymore, just kind of just coasting without belief, without obedience. Did you know the Barna Institute? I don't know how many of you have heard of the Barna Institute before, but they do, they do faith and religious uh, data collection. They do a lot of uh, surveys, and they come out with a lot of studies. And uh, this is important to me because uh, Beth and I were church planters for a, a season, for six years. And they, so they do this research and analysis, and they said that any church plant, any church plant, that has reached the six-year point, it just starts to maintain, to go into the status quo. It goes into maintenance mode. Six years. Maintenance mode. This church is over 100 years old. This church wouldn't be in existence if it always was in maintenance mode. But I will tell you this, it has been in maintenance mode before. It certainly has. In other words, the church starts to lull. Churches hit pause. They take a break. They feel pleased with the way things have been or used to be. And they always are trying to go back to the way it used to be. seems to be the problem. They start to coast. 
thinking it'll be this way forever. This is the way this church has been. It's the way every church that I've ever been a part of has been for seasons, okay? So that's not like hammering us, but every church has this danger zone. Now, here's the deal. Uh, let's put this graphic up here on the screen about research and development life cycle. This is the same for any group, not just churches. If you do the research, groups or even businesses, companies that don't continually find ways to innovate on their calling and their identity, they end up going into maintenance mode. And when you go into maintenance mode, if you can't shift back out of that, you will become irrelevant. You will become irrelevant. I want to show you another chart. This is Apple research and development chart. Let's go to the next one. This is a few years old. This is why analysts in the business world are always interested not just in earnings, not just in production, but how much a company is investing in research and development. If you aren't doing research and development, you won't know how you're going to achieve that next hill in a new way with a new product you're going to develop or something like that. Apple wouldn't come out with, would have never come out with the iPhone if they had not been doing research and development or an iPad, right? Or a smartwatch, that kind of stuff. How much is a company investing in research and development? R&D is like continually hitting the refresh and the reset button so that you can take that next hill, so that you can climb the next mountain, so that you can deal with the next challenge. Let's go to the next one. This is, uh, how many of you have seen all these new Tesla cars driving around our neighborhood? You guys seen these? They look different. They're electric. Uh, this is the research and development graph between what Tesla puts into research and development and what GM. This, again, this is a few years old. GM is catching up. Uh, and that's good, I think. If a company is investing little or nothing in research and development, then you might as well say that they do not believe in their mission or calling, or they think they can just coast. They think they can just coast and that they'll still be relevant, right? But they might as well just kiss their future goodbye if they aren't doing that because they aren't investing in practices that keep their mission in focus as the times and circumstances change around them. And it is the same for us as a church family. God is our focus. Jesus is our heart. Finding ways to live out practical, tangible rhythms in our lives, practices that are patterned after Jesus' heart, that is what we do. Where we do the research and development of discipleship and spiritual formation so that we don't lose focus and we can take the next mountain together and the next hill. This is really, 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 really important. It has everything to do with what we're talking about in 1 Samuel today. There are too many churches in this city, in America, and in the world that are just coasting. They are just maintaining. There is no vision. There is no goal. And we can't kid ourselves. Do we believe that a church, do you believe that a church, its people, will be blessed if faith isn't being demonstrated? Or if it's being mocked? No, we don't believe that. So I want you to know that the leaders in this church, and that's not just our eldership, but our servant leaders in this church, we see you guys putting your money where your mouth is in all kinds of tangible ways. We believe that God has called our church 
right here in West Seattle to help people to come to know Jesus and to have faith in him. So we have tirelessly strived to innovate all kinds of ways to introduce people to Jesus. And because of that, we believe that God has begun to bless us with more and more people who are filled with faith. God's like, you're acting in faith? I'm going to bless you with more and more people who are going to act more faithful alongside you so that this whole community of faith can grow and innovate and achieve its goal of introducing me to the world because he wants to put this world back together, folks. He wants to put it back together. And boy, does it need to be put back together, doesn't it? We want to join God, as the scriptures say in Revelation, in the renewal of all things. And it takes a whole family of Jesus followers who are filled with passion and commitment and leaders within this community who are leading the charge of faith and not backing down on who we are and what we're called to do in West Seattle. We need strong leaders. We need strong people. You know that each week, each week I'm out in the lobby and uh, before and after church, I think most of you see me there, and I meet a lot of new people. And they tell me, you know, we're just here to try out. We're just here to try out church. We're looking around at churches in the area. They may have just moved into the area. And my constant word to these folks, at least after after a second or third time, after a few times of getting together, is that you need to find where God is working, and you need to get into that. And if you're one, if you've come here in the last year, you know this to be true because as you've gotten to know me. I invite you into those spaces. Church is not about your druthers and you wanting to see if they will have all the things that help make your life easier for you. Church is a team. Get off the bench. (laughs) Get off the bench and get in the game. (laughs) Okay? It's about following the heart of God and living faithfully. If you come here and you think we're striving after God with all our hearts, and we are, but you don't see something happening that maybe needs to be happening, then get in it. Come tell me it needs to be happening and help, help us do it. Look, I'm going to name some names here. I'm gonna make, it's, you know, we sit at tables so that you can all look at each other and have a discussion with each other because discipleship happens in circles, not in rows. And we believe, unlike the rest of the world, that we should look each other in the eye and see the best of our humanity across the table from us and go, this is where it's at. Because you can get to the end of your life and go to church your whole life and not know anybody and not really know anybody. And so sitting around a table is where it's at. That's what Jesus did. He was always sitting around a table with people, eating food and talking about life and getting real. It's about following the heart of God and living faithfully. I, I met MJ. Yes, I did. Earlier this year. He's like, uh-oh, I told you I was going to name names. Let's get a little awkward in here. Watch out, Seattle. Okay. He said he could sing. I said, oh, yeah? Get in it. And he did. Beth said to, to Darius and Jackie, who already do too much around here, we need to make dinner happen at youth group on Wednesdays, and they stepped up to the plate. Shopping, cooking, cleaning, whatever needs to be done. I don't even ask them. They just do it. And then when I say don't do it, they say whatever. We're going to do what we want anyway. You know, Beth asked some folks to help us step up our game in Kids City. 
Carol Thomas is over there right now. She just joined. Wait, are you in here? Oh, you were in here, but yeah, that's all right. Oh, there you are. But you stepped up to the plate immediately when you were asked. You jumped in, you know, and you've been there faithfully week in, week out. She's acting in faith. Beth and I asked for more help for some of our youth group events, and tons of you stepped up. Tons of you moms and dads, even moms and dads who have kids that are like in preschool, in kindergarten, that age, they came anyway to come help because they know their kids are going to be there eventually, right? You stepped up. From what we asked for faith-filled and faithful servant leaders who could commit to be sponsors each and every time we meet so that our middle schoolers and our high schoolers can see and benefit from the faith of all of the adults, everyone else in the church. You know who else did that? Cassie, where are you? Cassie, you did that too. One of our newest youth sponsors. I asked a bunch of our kids in middle school. I asked a bunch of our kids in middle school and high school Look, I said, look, you're the future, but you're the church right now, not just tomorrow. You are the church right now. You're going to lead the way so the next generation will know the love of Jesus, and serving is a part of that. Will you help me with the audiovisual tech and live stream, which we're live streaming? So those of you who are with us on live stream right now, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're, if you're not new, welcome back. And back there running the show, turn around and look, everybody. Who's back there? Our kids and youth are back. They're running the show. To which all the adults who don't know how to do tech are like, whoo, glad I'm off the hook, yeah? Because they're like, uh, like we're, Rob and I are back there trying to explain it to him, and they're like, well, you just shut up. We know how to do this, you know? Um, what's my point? Church is people of faith who were on the same team. You're going to go home. You're going to watch some football if you haven't watched some football already, you know? Uh, in the last week or so, you're going to watch some football. You watch some football on Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. If you are not pulling in the same direction on your team, your coach puts you where? On the bench. If you, even on the bench, you don't show up and eventually you don't perform, what happens to you? You're cut. Churches of people of faith are on the same team, never stopping, never giving up always demonstrating and putting our faith on display in all kinds of ways. You need to find out where God is at work and get in it. Now, if you're here for a while, someone, not even me, someone else might ask you to jump in and get to it. But here's the deal. Don't wait to be asked. Why do I have to ask you? Right? Don't wait to be asked. Don't sit there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday where all you've become is a spiritual sponge where you soak it all up in here and when you leave, you just kind of squeeze it out and you dry up and you drive off. You don't demonstrate your faith or put it on display. You know what, guys? There's a very pertinent verse about all this in Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 18 says this, where there's no vision, the people perish. The people perish. Where there's no vision, the people perish. We have a vision to be a church that's a bright light in our community, to be a mission outpost of Jesus' followers who have his heart, who know his way, and put it into practice and know how to invite others into following him well. 
and we aren't afraid to do it. It's not hard to understand. It is simple. And we can be creative and innovate on this in a thousand different ways, but I'll tell you what, we need you. And all of us together help each other stay focused on that mission, God's heart for humanity, putting the world back together one person at a time. Jump over to Samuel 8, back in the text. It's always in the text. In Samuel 8, we see that after this time of judges, the people of Israel, they come to Samuel, who is now God's priest. He is God's representative to the people, and the people want a king. They want a king. And they even point out to Samuel that Samuel's own kids end up being just like his predecessor's kids. They end up being like Eli's kids were, faithless. And Samuel takes this really personally. He's devastated. He's devastated that they want a king. He's like, I haven't done my job. He's, he goes to God on his knees and he prays and he says, I have failed. But God says to him, Samuel, it's not you that they're frustrated with. It's me. So he has the, he has the it's not you, it's me conversation with him. First Samuel 8, verse 7, he says, Listen to all the people are saying to you, Is it not, it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God's saying, they want a human king, which means they've rejected God as king. Samuel goes back and asks them to change their mind. He tells them what a king will do to them. Here's their response in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, all right, listen to them and give them a king. So Samuel essentially says, like any good parent would today, hey, if these other nations told you to go jump in a lake or if they told you to jump off a cliff, if they told you to jump into a volcano, would you do it? And they're like, yup. <laughs> the way I look at this story is that the nation of Israel is basically going through its junior high phase. And I'll tell you, I've used this phrase in here a lot, even for adults. We never really leave the junior high phase we hope that we do, but there are certain aspects in our lives, even as you get older, where you're always looking out to find out what someone else thinks of you. What's their opinion of you? And then you, your actions follow a certain way in order to please what someone else thinks of you. This is their junior high phase. They just want to be like everyone else. They want to be like everyone else. They are easily swayed. They are not secure in their own identity. They are not comfortable in their own skin. And what I see here, because of how Samuel takes it, is this. There will be times when people will criticize you for who you are and what you're doing or where you're going as you follow Jesus. They will try to destroy your calling that God has on your life or keep you from doing something that you believe God has directed you to do. And I just want you to know that if God called you to where you are to do what he wants you to do, if he's done that, he's going to continue to sustain you. So don't give up. I have to repeat this message to myself all the time. Because I got all these other voices saying, don't do that, don't do that, change this, don't do that. And I'm like, no, God told me to do this. 
And so Israel, in their junior high phase, they are kind of doomed to become a victim. She's doomed to become a victim of her own choices. Samuel pleads with him, you guys are going to have to pay all kinds of things to this king. 1 Samuel 8, he tells them that a king will take their sons and daughters from them to do all kinds of work and projects and conscript them to the military. And he tells them that this king is going to take their flocks and their crops. He's going to take whatever he wants. And they say, we don't care. It's the cool thing to do in the neighborhood. Uh, We want a king. In other words, as Samuel puts it, you no longer want the simple truth of God himself as your Lord. You want something else that looks like the world because it looks cooler or tastier or more in or whatever. So God allows them to have a king even though it wasn't what he wanted for them, but it doesn't change uh, God's ultimate plan, which is to let all people know about him and his plan to put everything back together again. God's like, look, you made a covenant. I'm gonna, let me remind you, you made a covenant, a ketubah, a marriage vow with me to not be like everyone else. You are supposed to get your very identity, your identity, your identity from me. We talked about that last week. You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are to be different, set apart. I want, God says to them, I want people to see me and who I am and how I love them because of how you act as my people. The best way for people to see me is directly through you. There doesn't need to be any middlemen in the process. But God offers them the free choice, and that's what they try. And you can't tell me that in our world, in our country, in our state, in our city, in our world, that the people of God have made these same choices and gotten off track where God isn't enough for them, and we start doing things for the, for the world to see. And we don't show, we don't put God's love on display through the way that we act. In the end, they end up with a guy named Saul as their king. But Samuel gives them this warning. They have to follow God. And if they do, things will work out. And if not, then it'll lead to suffering and trouble. It's that vicious cycle again. And what we see pan out is that Saul, Saul, their king, misrepresents God by ignoring God's plans and taking matters into his own hands, doing things his own way, right? even eventually setting up a statue in honor to himself after a particular battle. And he does what God told him expressly not to do in that particular battle as well. When Samuel calls him out on it, God tells him, don't, he tells him, you're supposed to defeat everybody and everything, and you're not supposed to take anything. This isn't a victory for you to like get rich off of and you get all of the the bounty and the spoils of war and you make a name for yourself this is god's victory and and he gets all the credit alone and saul's like "Mm, he fudges a little bit on it samuel calls him out saul tries to justify his actions he tries to rationalize because we don't do that do we we don't rationalize with god or justify our actions i know i don't right you don't do you yeah. He tries to justify his actions. This is in 1 Samuel 15, verse 13. And the problem with this is the way that Saul 
acts. It's the way he acts. And the way, he's the king. The way he acts is how his people, Israel, will view and understand God. So when God wants the people to see, God wants to see himself, God wants the people to see him as just, as righteous. Saul's actions make the people think that God has approved cruelty and greed, right? Take what you want. Give nothing back. And it's because of this that Samuel tells Saul God has rejected him as king because the way he puts God on display is completely inaccurate. And they distort God's image in the eyes of his people and the eyes of other nations around Israel. And what we see here is that when someone, we've talked about this at the beginning, we have the lower story in our, in our, in our book, The Story here, our series. We've talked about the lower story of all these people and their individual stories and the upper story of what God's trying to achieve in the whole grand narrative. We see here is when someone in the lower story starts to affect the plan of God's upper story, in other words, that is put into danger, God steps in to intervene and change the course of his people. This is where we see the idea of a human king who is one after God's own heart. He's looking for one after his own heart now. A person who can show others what God is really like. A leader who can empower and enable and equip people to know and follow God the way he desires. And we're going to look at that part of the story next week when we get to David. But for today, I want you to remember I said that Israel got into this mess in the first place because they were acting like, what? Teenagers, high schoolers, who are so unsure of themselves that they're continually looking to others to give them their identity. They just want to be like everyone else. I always found that really funny. You know, I didn't think about it till later, but you got all these different groups and cliques of people that hang out in different groups, and they're all like, I'm different from you, I'm different from you, I'm different from you, but they're all like, they all think they're the coolest. And they're all getting their identity from each other in like a little echo chamber, you know? And they're all like, who they are and how they dress and what they say and how they act. And, and really, we haven't grown up from that. And we have to recognize that so that we can make the right choices. And the challenge for us is the same one that Israel failed back then. We're followers of Jesus who are supposed to be distinctly different. We are to be in the world but not of it. 